all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation in startups. Today, I am talking to managing partner Mike Becker of Vocap Ventures, who has been a decade-old venture capitalist as well as a technology operator. Um, 10 years in the business is a long time for people in this business, because if you're not good, you usually get washed out. And Mike is definitely good. He is a staple uh, brand, especially in the Southeast, where he covers Austin to Boston uh, with software companies. Mike, how are you doing today? Doing great, David. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I love the background. <laughs> We were just talking about that. Yes, I've got Teddy in my background, and I keep a quote, uh, which uh, many people are probably familiar with from his, his uh, Citizen in the Republic uh, uh, speech in Paris, uh, that is the man in the arena. Mm-hmm. Um, I just uh, thought it's always uh, reminded me and made me think a lot of entrepreneurship. And, um, you know, it's better to be uh, in, in the arena getting bloodied and bowed than it is to uh, just be thinking and talking about it. Exactly. Did you, have you seen like the memes about the man in the arena when Chamath referred to himself as being in the arena? (laughs) No, I, I, I occasionally listen to those guys, but uh, no, I must've missed that one. What was the meme? Well, I mean, it's essentially, he made a big, you know, tweet about, um, you know, being in, being in the arena. And then he just got obliterated from it because, you know, founders are like, dude, you're not in the arena. You're in an, you know, you're, you're an investor, right? You're not, you know, you're not getting hit by customers and employees, but I don't know, man. I think that especially being a managing director, right. Uh, and a founder of a venture firm, you're kind of in the arena, you're putting your reputation on the line, you're making the investment decision. What do you think? Well, I mean, technically speaking, my job is quite easy, right? All I have to do is write a check and then sit back. Isn't that, isn't that, you know, isn't that what we do on the uh, black hat side of the table? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Apparently, Uh, and we just... just Lots to unpack there, by the way, of my experiences (laughs) with VCs as an entrepreneur uh, and then switching sides of the table. uh, Definitely, that was actually kind of a part of our core thesis in terms of of, of why uh, our firm came together. But, um, but yes, I mean, look, you're, uh, if you're legitimately there helping and trying to build businesses, uh, is it the same as uh, being in the hot seat of uh, being the founder and CEO of a company? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I liken it to uh, a parent versus a grandparent, right? If mm-hmm. you're a parent uh, and your child has a problem, it's all you. You have to fix it, right? If you're the grandparent, you bounce the baby on the knee, you know, it soils a diaper, you hand it back to the parent and say, why don't you get that cleaned up? You know, uh, the, the cynical view of, uh, of the VC world is we're, we're just grandparents. We bounce the baby on the knee and hand it back when it's not doing what we want it to. 
Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, you know, to be fair, there's some truth in that. You know, I don't, uh, you know, as as, uh, largely minority investors, we don't run people's companies. So we're Mm -hmm. uh, here to help and advise, but we're not uh, we're not actually the parent. No, exactly. And when you think about helping and advising and um, as far as maybe you know, th- when things are going great, I feel like I'm generally not super active, <laughs> you know, but when things are starting to go sideways or down is when I have to get um, a little bit more active. And there's nothing feels better to me when I'm able to return capital back with a company that's going flat or down because I did a lot of work generally. Um, and not so much when things are going up and to the right, because usually things are just working. Founders are working, markets are working, products working. How do you think about value creation um, as a VC and with the Vocap brand? Um, sure. So I look, I, uh, that takes me back to a little bit about um, why did Vocap come together and, you know, kind of what motivated us uh, as former entrepreneurs to become investors. And certainly a a large part of it, it was um, as we looked at our own experience with venture capital, it um, uh, we had a lot of people tell us that they would help. And, you know, then they show up in the board meeting and they've half read your deck. Uh, And it's. For us, the thesis was always to actually orient ourselves to be able to help and to seek to help throughout. So um, there is no doubt, and and I totally agree with you, when an investment is not working and you need to work with a team to try to find, uh, uh, you know, kind of the best possible outcome for that company, uh, that um, there can be a lot of time involved. Um, And I've certainly experienced that as, as as an investor. I'd say on the flip side of it, though, um, if we on the VC side are not doing our work all the way throughout, well, you're going to end up in those situations that you just described a lot more often. Mm-hmm. Um, and our our thesis, really from the get go, we're um, we're more probably more intensive on the diligence side than a lot of folks, um, and that's intentional so that we actually know the company well enough to feel like our advice is coming from a place of, of informed, you know, as opposed to, I kind of mentioned half reading a deck, showing up in a board meeting and spouting opinions. Um, you know, we want to make sure that uh, the uh, advice and counsel that we're offering is coming from a place of, of really understanding the business, understanding its market and its opportunity. And that takes a lot of work up front. Uh, you know, I've had, uh, you know, our, our founders that we've invested in be like, Wow, you, you guys did a lot more than other people, and 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 then on the backside, but once we write the check, they're like, "All right, this is great. You understand my business, and you can speak to it about others, you know, at a level that a lot of people that are involved with my business can't." Um, I mean, we even come out the back end of that diligence, and we're very transparent. Once you know, we invest in the company with, here is everything we learned. So, why don't I start off, Mr. Founder, and give you the perspective? of an outsider, because that's what we are before we write a check and get involved. Let me give you the perspective of an outsider looking in at your business. And um, it, it, as a entrepreneur, I think that's a very helpful thing because you can go like, okay, 
yeah, right, I didn't do a great job of conveying this, or, ooh, yeah, I agree with that, I, you know. So some areas they'll push right back and say, okay, I think you missed a few things here, and that, and great, we got up to speed more. Other areas are like, yeah, that's, that's a gap, we gotta work on that. But it gives us an outline, and we really try to come into that with uh, a set of recommendations right off the bat of saying, hey, we, you know, we know you from what we did, we still don't know you as well as, well as we will in a couple of months, but here are some initial thoughts in terms of some things that we can work on together immediately. Um, and big proponents of working boards, right? Uh, if somebody's occupying a seat on a board, uh, ideally they have a role and a task and things to do in between board meetings to benefit that company. Um, and that's, that's something we also work with our founders a lot on is, is there's a governance role to being on a board and there's an oversight role, no doubt. Um, but at the end of the day, ideally everybody on there also has um, kind of a specific role in helping to advance the company beyond just sitting in the meetings. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so these working sessions, are companies generally at the stage of you writing a check or, or how much of this stuff do you do kind of building the relationship and the companies are too early? But you, you play in the Series A stage, correct? Yeah, why don't we back up a little bit and I'll just kind of frame... Mm-hmm. Um, let me give you two things because I think it'll be helpful in terms of framing for your listeners a little bit about where we're coming from on it. Um, uh, I'll, I'll talk about where we focus and I'll talk a little bit about the origin story and then that'll kind of bring us, I think, right back around to kind of how do we how do we work uh, with founders? The uh, um, Just where we focus, pretty simple. We're, we're uh, focused on the business-to-business software. Um, we are broad, we'll broadly look at, at, at B2B software, you know, recurring revenue streams, but if you look at where the bulk of our time gets spent, uh, it's more in media technology, financial technology, supply chain and industrial technologies, um, and healthcare. And uh, so a lot of what we've done are in those four core segments, and we've done some things outside of that in B2B software. But you're, you're not going to see us uh, you know, these days making investments in B2C related stuff. You, you won't see us in uh, med device. You're, you're not going to see us in biotech, right? We really kind of, we know our lane and, and we know it pretty well. We built a strong network there. So that's where we focus. We're early stage, but for early stage for us is typically series A. So think post-product market fit, um, a lot of people define Series A a little <laughs> differently these days, um, but for us, um, it is a large part about that product market fit. Uh, and do we feel like the company has established that? They know what they're selling, who they're selling it to. There's a track record there that we can dive into. Um, and so bulk of, of our rounds are us leading Series A rounds that are, well, let's call it five to 12 million in size. Um, we write two to six million dollar checks, um, and um, and again we're active in our uh, uh, role. We're we're almost always joining the board and and really looking to add value from that. Um, the most of what we do, you said Austin to Boston. That's still true. The only thing I'd throw in there more now is is uh, very active in the Midwest these days. So um, you know you'll see a southeast Midwest up the eastern seaboard. Um, we tend to focus on less capitalized markets. But we will. I mean, we've made a number of investments in New York, and uh, we will make investments where it's a little more active. What you won't see us doing that much is um, in making investments in, in the Bay Area or you know out in uh, on the West Coast that much. 
um, the uh, we do get some inbound to us that way, and we will look at some things, but uh, but are proactive in those markets we just talked about. So that's kind of where we focus and what we focus on, and the stage that we tend to come in. Um, the, uh, the the way this came together, uh, actually, my two other partners, Vinnie Olmsted and Pat Welsh, founded Vocap originally, um, and uh, the name Vocap actually comes from. Pat and Vinny sitting around going, well, what do you want to call this? Uh, I don't know. How about Vinny Olmstead Capital, you know, V-O-Cap. <laughs> <laughs> so that's actually where the name VOCAP came from, was just the two of them sitting around talking about it. Uh, but um, the, the, we've all known each other for a long time. Um, so these are, you know, um, I, you know, Pat Welsh and the Welsh family have been family friends since I was a little kid. Um, uh, Vinny, I got to know because uh, um, I made an investment into his startup, so got to know him as a CEO while I was still in my own startup. Pat was an investor in Vinny's startup. Um, the quick backgrounds, Pat uh, is the founder also of Welsh, Carson, Anderson & Stowe, a private equity group out of New York. You may be familiar with them. I think that at this point they've raised $31 billion in capital. and returned many multiples of that. Uh, very successful private equity group focused on technology and healthcare. So Pat's background of 40 plus years of investing in his network is phenomenal for us. Um, and he's now, he's co-officed with Vinny down in our uh, Florida office. Um, and uh, and Vinny's background's kind of like mine. Uh, we both started in consulting. He started on the healthcare side of it. With Mercer, I started on the software side with uh, what's now Accenture. And um, he went, you know, through, it was uh, in, involved in, um, you know, a, a, a massive learning cycle and a massive scale up with uh, 360 networks. And, uh, and then it was the founding CEO of Bridgevine, uh, which is, the, you know, the company that I had invested in and got to know him through. Um, and, uh, you know, after he really scaled Bridgevine, I think it was up over 50 million in revenue or so, he and Pat started to talk about starting the uh, started vocab and so then he stepped back um, brought in a new ceo he remained kind of chairman until we sold that company and um, he and pat started what was then vocab ventures so the very beginning of vocab was a little more seed oriented and, and really just pat and Vinny. and then after i exited my company my background was you know from accenture and then it, a couple of short jogs and eventually started a company down here with another uh, uh set of founders and, and myself and kind of a principal partner in that uh, scaled a, a business that was in the uh, database and loyalty marketing side. We worked with media, radio, TV, print. I think we had about 4,000 or so radio stations by the time they left. Uh, we sold that to an oak tree uh, portfolio company who was doing a roll-up in our space, and, and then they asked us to stick around and manage one of their two divisions for about three years after that. So, and that was kind of my background coming into this. So I'd, I've, I'm now, uh, I've still been an operator more than I've been an investor. Um, but uh, as you put it, 10 years in, in investing, it's, uh, we've been at it for a little while now. And we've, fund two was really the beginning of OCAP Partners and our Series A focus. So we're fully invested and, and pretty much fully realized on that. That was a great fund for us. And fund three is all our new investments are done. And now we're just working with those companies as they scale. And uh, next new checks out of fund four, which is uh, you know off and running. So we're, we feel blessed to be doing what we're doing. And that's, uh, you know, kind of how we came together. And I, I said a large part of that was Vinny and I talking about our own experiences and what do we want from 
VCs, you know, what did we wish we had from VCs? And that's how mm -hmm. we kind of built the crux of it. And we can get into more of that, but I'll, I'll pause there. That gives you some context. And so, you know, you would say from a VC perspective, you play much tighter, you know, uh, not B2B SaaS, you know, companies that are responsible on burn, SaaS metrics, uh, have you know a, a paramount importance. So when you're looking at a Series A company, besides the typical net dollar retention being over 100%, like what, what's a typical ARR that you like to see? Because that's the big black box, right? On on early stage is when does Series A come in? And um, so when do you feel like there's a validated product market fit at what stage? Well, I think the hard part about this, both for entrepreneurs and for us, is. Um, while revenue has some correlation to product market fit, it's not a direct one. You know, and I can show you, you know, million dollar revenue run rate companies that have much more solid product market fit than some $5 million revenue companies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're a founder and, and are selling a more bigger ticket and you got a good Rolodex, you can ring up some sales and not really have mm -hmm. established that strong a product market fit and that much of a motion in your go to market. So, um, if I more typically look at when do we come in and how far are the companies along, we're mostly coming in when companies are somewhere in between 1 million and 5 million in revenue. Um, we will occasionally go a little bit earlier than that um, and uh, uh, you know do kind of more of the seed extension, but it's it's usually more uh, when they're in that one to 5 million. And you know what is product market fit? Um, I mean, I gave the euphemistic answer before. You know what you're selling, which, Honestly, I still talk to entrepreneurs and, and they're like, wow, well, you know, this and this, you know. So you got to know pretty solidly what you're selling. And we're looking to in invest in what you're doing now. I'm, I'm going to caveat this, but it's we're coming in and making the bet that you have some fit with what you're doing now, not what you're about to add to it. Mm -hmm. And that's. Yeah, I'll be careful in that framing because no Series A company has a completed product, right? Mm -hmm. And software is a treadmill and you're always running on that treadmill to, to keep advancing. So, I mean, the vision of where you're going is very important to us. The moat that gets created out of that is very important. But if you're coming in and saying, hey, I got a million in revenue from this, but you know what? I just made my first sale over here and this is how I'm going to scale the business. That's not really product market fit, right? Right. Um, and, and unfortunately, we see a fair amount of that. And, and that's kind of a you're still really searching through that product market fit because you've got to establish the new thing is working. Right, exactly. It's like, okay, we opened up the door you know, to talk to you, but we realized that this million dollars is a tiny market or the, the pain point's really not there, but we were able to talk a million dollars worth of people coming <laughs> into buyer software. And that, that, that revenue is probably going to contract over time. It, yeah, it is. And it's, you know, and the, diff, the most difficult part is, of course, the company wants to be valued on the million dollars, even though they're telling you that this is not what I'm going to do, you know? Right. Um, um, you, you see a lot of that in services businesses that pivot to try and launch a SaaS product. And, and, and now they want to, you know, hey, I've got my services and here's my SaaS, and, but I want credit for that. And mm -hmm. so. so when you think about East Coast versus West Coast conservative, and you know, there's you know West Coast mentality on the East Coast, you know, and vice versa. But you know, if I'm going to be broad, how do you think about power law when it comes to a conservative B2B SaaS portfolio? 
Um, so I mean, look, I would say by and large, um, I'm going to distinguish there. Yes, there is an East Coast, West Coast thing, but there I, I, I know a lot of West Coast investors that have the exact same mentality for company sure. building that we do. So some of it ends up coming down to actual fund size as to what drives some of these things. And if you if you go back, uh, we didn't used to be have a landscape full of mega funds. Um, right. I mean, that's still a relatively new phenomena of of having funds as big as they are. And um, when you have raised a massive amount of money and you're trying to put it work, let's speak specifically at the early stage here for a second. Um, if the company does not have a power law curve and is not going to scale extremely rapidly to a very large outcome, it cannot make a difference to your fund. Um, I would just... Re- internally talking about this uh, uh, as it related to one of the companies we were looking at the other day. Uh, if I come in and I'm you know, investing into something, and uh, first of all, my check size has to be bigger if I have a mega fund, and I can't put you know, three, four, five, seven million, I gotta put 10 to 20 to work, otherwise it doesn't matter. And then from there, if, I, if the company had you know, what the founder might consider to be a phenomenal outcome of like, let's say I sell it for 200 million, I got a billion or $2 billion fund, did not move the needle. Um, I've had, I, I will leave the firm nameless, but it was on a board with a, a partner at one of the very large funds and she was talking about uh, a half a million, half a billion dollar outcome. And it was a meh, <laughs> doesn't move the needle on our fund. So part of when we get into this East Coast, West Coast mindset discussion, I mean, fund size has to be kind of factored into it because if you've got a bigger fund, you're trying to king make, right? You're trying to, at the early stage, you're trying to identify something that you think is going to absolutely blow up. And then you want to find, you know, the right jockey to get in with in that space. And then it's typically flooded with capital and, uh, and, and really try and grow it. And if it doesn't, you know, get to unicorn status, it's going to be really, it's not going to make a big impact for you. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at, that's great. We have no problem. We have companies that have you know that potential to go over 100 million and uh, and keep scaling in revenue. Um, but there are a lot of great outcomes for entrepreneurs that don't look like that. And you know the VC path shouldn't have only one direction on it, where it's like you go to 100 million in five to seven years, or we don't give a shit about you, right? That's there 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 needs to be and should be a lot of other outcomes that are great for both the investor as well as the uh, entrepreneur. And for us, I mean, we're typically coming in, our underwriting usually is underwritten to a hundred to a $300 million outcome. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the kind of, uh, you know, statistics of the number of exits and you're looking at the probability of those exits, there are a lot more exits, particularly in the markets we're in that are in that range that are in the half billion plus. And uh, so we're, we're shooting for very realistic targets, which makes for, I think, a lot more of an aligned experience. Um, and it's very common for me to be talking to founders early on about, okay, great. If you hit your go-to-market motion and your efficiency and everything's going with a real steep slope on the curve, we'll help you optimize all the next rounds and keep going. If you're not, well, let's work an efficient path with capital to get you to an outcome that's life-changing for you, 
and still provides a great return for your for your investors. I mean, there's not just one path to this game. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, I think that 100 to 300 million, you know, that would be indicative of a fund probably between, I don't know, 50 to 100, which there's more of those than the mega funds. Would you agree with that? Sure. And I'd call it um, uh, a meaningful impact on funds up to, say, 250 in size. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, it, again, depending on where you're going to come in, if you're going to if it's 2021 and you're going to pay 40 times for a million dollar uh, ARR company, <laughs> nobody's going to make money at 100 to 300 million, right? Right. Um, the uh, but that's not really you know that's not the historic norm of the marketplace, particularly outside the valley. And um, there's you know plenty of great outcomes for those kind of sub 300, sub 250 funds that uh, that can happen in that 100 to 300 range. So how do you so if power law is not necessary or less necessary than in a mega fund than a, a sub I mean subscale two hundred fifty million dollars is a lot of money but you know anything let's just say less than two fifty how do you think about miss rates in that dragging down the fund versus because you have to kind of balance the ones that are going to fail versus the upside potential right so and then, and then the fee drag of course right so. How do you think about miss rates on a Series A fund when you play tight? Yeah, so look, loss ratio is a part of venture capital. Um, sure. It's just it's it's you don't if you don't have any losses at an early stage, you are not taking enough risk. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, that loss ratio changes as you move up, you know, C to A to, to, to B. And if you're in that B, C stage, you're playing for very low loss ratio and you're probably aiming for more like two to five X outcomes. Mm-hmm. When we come in, you know, we're underwriting things to more of the five to 10 X. And that's the potential of the company. You know, that's, we, you know, obviously a lot of them have potential well beyond a 10 X return. My point is more, if we can't see a five to 10 X, uh, then it's probably not a good fit. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm quite transparent with entrepreneurs about this. If some of our uh, entrepreneurs are extremely familiar with venture capital, some are not. And I usually the early on in, in getting to know them, I kind of say, look, well, let me tell you how venture capital works in the things I, I wish I had known when I was kind of back in, in your shoes. Um, and so series A, if you're going to, let's just simplify it and call it 10 bets, right? If you're going to make 10 bets in series A, um, I, you know, I don't have the exact industry stats in front of me, but I've heard this quoted by a lot of people. I mean, a typical series A is going to have four out of 10 bets, not return the money they put into it Mm. four out of 10. Um, and so now you think about that, that uh, curve of what you need, that means your top one, two, three bets, they need to be very strong returns because they're making up for those bottom four uh, that returned less or even down to zero. And um, so you've got to play that balance. And it means if we're going to take 10 bets, if I took five, my, five of my bets and I said, hey, these are really low risk, but I think I can get a two to three X, Mm-hmm. It, it just doesn't work, right? Right. Um, so we're coming into it saying, does the company have the potential to drive a five to ten x? Yes, mm-hmm. no. If it's a yes, awesome. That can fit within the context that we're trying to do. And then we know that along the way, 
um, a company might max out and have the best possible outcome that might be a two or three X, in which case, you know, we're not looking to stand in the way of that. If that's the right outcome and kind of the peak of the company, uh, we had an early exit out of our fund three. It was kind of like that. It was uh, just a little bit less than a three X and, um, you know, a little shorter period of time and uh, life changing money for the founder. And we're like, okay, you know, if this is, you know, the right outcome and you really think we're, you know, this is kind of maximizing your timing of when to exit, you know, we didn't stand in the way of it. You know? mm-hmm. um, that's not what we underwrote the company to that, you know, quite frankly, we thought there was more potential beyond that. Um, but that's, you know, that's the nature of the game. So what are you excited for in venture going forward? Well, I, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's a fascinating time coming out of what we just went through, right? If you come talk to me in 2021, with our style, our approach, you know, the, the whole mindset of building businesses around metrics driven and, and having optionality and being efficient so that the capital markets don't dictate to you, you have the ability to decide your potential. I felt really dumb in 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just like, people are playing a game that I'm just, I am not in that game, right? And I remember, Tiger looking at one of our companies and talking to two of their partners and and I mean this is they were doing two deals a day that was their average two deals mm-hmm. a day and smoothest elbows in the business right you know we're going to pay top of the market you know we're not going to uh, mess with the governance and and we're going to keep running and it was just kind of a fire hose of money coming um, so. What did that do, right? We've, we're, we're now in, uh, uh, we've all seen public market drop in the, the late stage drop and that's starting to ripple down, did ripple down over, over that time period. And, uh, but you've left this, you funded all these seed companies in 20 and 21. That right. wave of companies are, you know, now, you know, if they, could have gotten an extension or they can run their money longer. They've been, they've been doing it, but those companies now in 23, 24, 25 are coming back into the marketplace. So you've got a strong wave of capital. You've got uh, better entry prices. And, you know, I know from an entrepreneur standpoint, everybody wishes they could still get 40 times, but realistically now you've got a reset to more historic norms uh, that I think are healthier, honestly, in the long run for both entrepreneur and investor. Um, you've got uh, SaaS ecosystems in the markets that we work with that have matured materially, tools, talent, financing resources. I mean, just a lot more to work with here than, than there were a while bit, uh, than there was in the past. And then you've got this very interesting inflection point for, for SaaS as it relates to AI, right? And I know you've had people on your podcast and talking about AI and what's going on there. And, and, you know, we've ad nauseum had the, uh, you know, the media hype cycle coming out of uh, OpenAI's release of ChatGPT a year ago. But, but if you really kind of step back from that and you look at the evolution of where we were, um, even just, you know, three to five years ago, right? I mean, our companies have been using artificial intelligence for quite a long time. Um, you know, if you go over and talk to XOI and field service, they're using object character recognition and natural language processing, machine learning to assist technicians in the field. Soundstripe has been using machine learning and algorithms to, to surface and suggest content for quite a long time. 
Um, you know, Blue Ridge, you were, uh, we, we've exited, but on the supply chain planning side, we was using a neural network to improve demand forecasting outcomes. So the use of AI is not new. But there is no doubt that the combination of the explosion of data, compute power getting cheaper and through and, and throughput and, and, and memory advances scaling going, you know, just driving up, um, coupled with the innovation of transformer models. I mean, they, they, you know, if you look at what, you know, CNN and RNN models were able to do, um, and what the step function is of kind of better parallel processing and having self-supervised learning enable you to <laughs> basically dump the entire web in, uh, into a model and, and take more of the human out of the training process. Uh, it's massive. Um, so I you know, have heard all sorts of opinions on what they think is going to happen. Um, I, you know, I am not a prognosticator of when gen general intelligence is going to come upon us. And from a B2B SaaS standpoint, that's not really the relevant piece, right? What's relevant is how do we make humans better at their jobs? Mm -hmm. And um, this, this wave of technology and now some of the funding and as people get more and more conversant on working with these foundation models, it's going to hit every part of the B2B organization. I mean, literally every part. I mean, you're going to be administrative side, the management side, finance, uh, sales, marketing, they're all going to be touched by pretty significant step functions in terms of what, how the software helps the human do their job. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we're just seeing the point solutions right now. I mean, those are the kind of the obvious first steps. Uh, I picked on XOI before I had the, just released, uh, you know, the next capability in this cap, uh, component where their their technology was already using OC, OCR and, and NLP to capture what was going on on job sites, um, and technicians literally just using their phone, and and uh, now it's going to just automatically write up the job summary. So that tech doesn't have to go back to the truck and type it all out. It just literally takes all the assets and everything you capture just with by taking pictures and speaking and it, the job summary is automatically written for you probably better than the technician was going to do themselves. And that's just a simple example of taking existing workflow and dropping some of the, uh, you know, the latest capabilities into it. And you see that uh, going on kind of across the board. I've, you know, our booster folks are doing that in automating, you know, media RFPs. Um, I've seen some of that start to come into the defense contracting world. Uh, I thought Intercom did a really good job of jumping out there quickly uh, in terms of incorporating some of this into their existing customer support applications. But those are point solutions, right? That's what, you know, you didn't re redesign the entire software. Um, what gets pretty exciting is when people start to think application from a first principle standpoint. And that over the next couple of years is what we're gonna to start to see more and more of. Um, uh, I am uh, very, uh, we don't play at the infrastructure layer uh, that much. We don't, we're not, you're not gonna see us playing in the foundational model layer. Um, those are expensive games, big in scale. Uh, I heard the statistics at one point that in the cloud transition, uh, you know, major three cloud hyperscalers captured two trillion of the value there. Um, mm -hmm. And by contrast, two trillion of the value in the application layer was spread up across 
well over a hundred companies with a big long tail beyond that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, fun like us isn't going to be coming in and conceiving, um, you know, the next major infrastructure layer, uh, or even quite frankly, probably playing that hard in, in within the, you know, the model hub or the closed source or open source foundation models. But we're very, very focused on that application layer. Um, I think the incumbents have a little bit of an advantage on horizontal applications. We'll see some startups do well there, but large distribution, deep data flywheels, massive R&D resources. I, I mean, you and I aren't gonna go out there and create the next best version of the office suite, right? I mean, I think Microsoft and Google are probably gonna do a pretty a, a better job than, than uh, what most startups can muster in terms of incorporating the technology there. Uh, vertical is a little different, you know, particularly if you can corner a, a piece of proprietary data that's really meaningful in an industry. Um, if you've got access to some proprietary data and you can put first principles thinking to it, I really think you can out-execute the incumbents. And I think that's where the opportunity is. That's super interesting because, yeah, I, I feel like replatforming with a, you know, with a product that's probably not as deep but has an AI you know, feature is it's, it's a recipe for failure. But if you've got if you've got the workflows, you know, as well as us, you know, that that is a little bit more easier to build because it's standard. You know, it, within the vertical, you have an, a founder that understands the workflows much better, and then you have you know some proprietary data and some and some AI. I think those can win. Yeah, and you got to be pragmatic. I mean, this is the thing. You know, if you if you go pie in the sky. Or if you go with your personal thesis of, you know, just like, like if I build it, they will come. I mean, that's usually not a good recipe in vertical software, right? But if you stick really close to, uh, uh, you know, very uh, burning bright pain points, and if you pay attention to what it will pragmatically be used, I mean, that's, I'll compliment the XY guys again, they've done a really good job of this. Technicians, I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're not like you and I, right? They're not just grabbing every latest tech thing and geeking out over it, right? If it doesn't help them do their job better and if it's not simple to use, it's not getting used. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's been the biggest problem in field service software. People have innovated software and, and it just sits dormant. Right. It's got to be practical. And right. um, But on the flip side of it, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly who used the analogy, but it was a really good one. Um, they were talking about um, the transition from steam power to electricity um, and kind of comparing when we were primarily steam-based and you built a, a, a you know a manufacturing facility, everything had to be built really close to the steam engine because you couldn't transfer the energy very far. So all of your workflows were packed in um, and they were just making the point that once electricity came along, Sure, they didn't blow up all the factories the next day. They didn't redesign the entire thing the next day. But eventually people started going like, why do we have all these workflows? Wouldn't this be more efficient if we spread this out? Oh, wait, we can do that with electricity, right? I think you're going to have a, oh, wait, we can do that. A lot of those moments are going to be coming up over the next few years where that first principles thinking is going to um, take advantage of some of the, cap- the, new- the newer capabilities. And, you know, again, go back to some of this and some of the um, transitions over time, right? You know, personal computing obviously moved the things from the server rooms into our desktops and then the internet dropped the marginal cost of distribution 
basically to zero. And mobile took those computers off our desktop, put them in our hands, and that was another layer of productivity. And cloud, you know, moved a lot of those servers out and, and into the cloud and allowed us to deliver things as a service. You know, now we're getting to where the cost of creating and probably analyzing content is going to start. The marginal cost of that's going to start to go to zero, and that's got to change how people approach things. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So, anyways, I'm waxing poetic here. It's fun <laughs> stuff, though. It's fun. It is. It is. It is. Um, everybody, thank you for listening to the interview with the Serpulous Mike Becker of Vocap Partners, not Vocap Ventures, Series A firm based out of Atlanta and Florida, um, B2B SaaS applications in the Series A phase. Mike, how can people get to you? Sure. Give me your home, well, um, give me your home address. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, easiest way is obviously go to Vocap Partners. Um, you can look me up on LinkedIn and connect. Uh, I'm just Mike.Becker at VocapPartners.com. It's pretty easy to reach me. Um, I think there's kind of a myth that it's impossible to get to VCs, and it's just, it's really not. Um, although, look, it's always better if you know somebody who knows me to, to get an intro, and we all experience that every time we all try to get intros as well. Awesome. Uh, everybody, thank you for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe, tell a friend, subs- cancel me. Uh, we drop an episode every Tuesday. You can find all of our podcasts at davidpaul.com. I bought that domain for a couple million bucks. It's off the market, but I will sell it again. Um, just kidding. Anyway, thanks again so much and have a great uh, rest of the week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.